Welcome to Policy Emma Combs, a data-focused conversation on trade-offs. I'm Carlos Carvalho from the Salem Center for Policy at the University of Texas at Austin. Hi, everyone. Today is December 10th, 2021, and it's a pleasure to have with us Jay Bharacharya from Stanford University, where he's a professor in the School of Medicine, also in the Department of Economics, and a senior fellow of the Hoover Institution. Jay, thanks for joining us at, at UT. My pleasure. So I'm going to start by mentioning Hoover and um, the shirt that I'm using here, which is the, the, the saying of our, of our Salem Center for Policy here, something that was inspired by Thomas Sowell, one of your colleagues at, at Stanford, and reminding everybody that I guess about a year or so ago, a little bit more now, the beginning of COVID, uh, you were one of the few voices that were very strongly talking about the trade-offs that we're about to face with the policies being proposed and implemented uh, in the country. So let's start from that, let's, from that point. Let's start from back in March, 2020, I think. That's when you, you first became, I mean, prominence around your work became very, 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 uh, uh, got emphasized because you're questioning at that point in time, the, the, you know, the, the, the wise, whether or not the policies being put in place were wise. Um, take us back to that moment and, 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 and walk us through what were you thinking? What was your thinking at that point in time uh, in the beginning? Sure. Uh, so in, Mar- in March of 2020, I had been following the, the track of the disease in, in, in um, China and in Italy. Um, and uh, I, uh, there's, there seemed to be like still a great bit of uncertainty about how widespread the disease was. Uh, I'd remembered back in the H1N1 2009 epidemic, there was a lot of evidence that uh, early on that, 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 that uh, people were very scared about the high case fatality rate because uh, uh, they were looking at the number of deaths divided by the number of identified cases. But then over time, over, over the course of a couple of years, it turned out based on seroprobin studies that, is, that H1N1 was way more widespread than people had realized. A lot of people had gotten infected, recovered, and uh, had very few symptoms. And so the infection fatality rate turned out to be much, much lower in H1N1 than the case fatality rate, 100 times lower, 99.99% survival, something like that on that order. Um, so uh, I, I, had a, I had a hypothesis that might, that might be the case in the, in the context of COVID. At the same time, I mean, I'm a health economist. I mean, with that, that, uh, that, that slogan you have on your shirt, that is true in health economics to spades. Uh, the, the, um, every action here that people were talking about or potentially con- contemplating was going to have consequences. And it's not always, it wasn't clear to me that those consequences should be ignored. I, I remember uh, a reporter from Reuters called me up and asked me, uh, I think it was a l- mid-March or, or, or uh, right, right around when the lockdowns were started, started getting implemented um, he, they, about whether I thought, uh, he was asking me about like domestic abuse and child abuse. And, uh, and he was asking me what, what, what would happen if everyone were to stay at home? What would happen to child abuse and domestic abuse? And um, I mean, it, it was, it, I mean, it was, it was uh, uh, actually it struck me that, that he was asking me this because it seemed like everyone else it, around the country was just panicking around COVID. And he was thinking about child abuse. Um, you know, uh, it was very clear to me then, and, it's, and it's, it's what's happened is that children were going to be abused. Normally you pick up when, when schools close, what happens is children, uh, th- that the abuse of children gets picked up at, at school where there are people to, to, to see the bruises and then call Child Protective Services. If you keep kids at home, those kids don't get picked up. They don't get, they, they just get abused. 
Um, same thing with domestic abuse. Uh, the the uh, uh, the I, I mean, I could see also the psychological harm to so many people from this kind of isolation. I mean, lockdown is a uh, is a prison term. It's designed for punishment. And in July of 2020, the CDC found one in four young adults had seriously considered suicide. And the other the other thought that I had in March 2020 was to the world's poor, right? So you you have uh, 20 years or more of globalization where uh, poor countries around the world have reorganized their economic life to fit in with the world economy. That means so many people's lives, uh, including poor people, had been changed so that they could fit in, they could do productive things that would work, that would, that would allow them livings. And, and a billion people were lifted out of poverty as a result. Lockdown, it seemed to me, was guaranteed to reverse that. And that's, that's, what, that's what's happened, right? A hundred million people thrown into poverty around the world because of the economic dislocations caused by lockdowns. Uh, 80 million people, these are all just UN numbers. I mean, uh, 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 80 million people thrown into dire food insecurity, hundreds of thousands of children dead from starvation in just South Asia alone. Um, I mean, I think uh, these were entirely predictable. And many people actually were predicting them. Like the, the UN was yelling from the top of his lungs, you know, this is, these are going to happen. These things, you know, we're going to stop uh, doing malaria control. You're going to stop doing t- treatments for TB. It was, uh, you're going to have reduction, uh, crazy reductions in immunization of, of children with, with, with long-term consequences of reduction. You stop checking cancer patients for for early stage cancer. So you end up with late stage cancer later. So women coming in late to late stage breast cancer that, that should have been picked up last year. Um, all of these things were entirely predictable as costs of the policy. Uh, so that's what I was thinking in March, 2020, right? I was thinking that we don't know yet how deadly the disease is until we've done some, uh, some detailed seroprevalence work. And we don't, we, we, but we know for certain that the harms of these lockdowns are gonna be devastating. So you're, you're there sitting as an economist thinking that this action will have tremendous potential impact, which is, again, any reasonable person at that point in time would, would agree that an extreme measure of asking people to lock in place for an indeterminate period of time um, would have severe consequences. I mean, I remember being, being concerned about, I don't know what that does to a, to a supply chain. I don't know what, whether we're going to have you know, disruption of food supplies and people are not. I'm actually was very pleased to see that somehow we, even though we're complaining a lot about supply disruption of things right now, the grocery stores are packed and stocked with things. And, you know, even in the height of the problem, I'll, I'll tell I, you why that, that I was, was shocked by that. Well, I'll tell you why, right? So the lockdown essentially was a, was a policy designed to protect the rich. It's a, it's a policy designed for people who didn't, wouldn't lose their jobs and they could replace them with zoom if they didn't go into the office. Uh, we, we designated a large part of the population as essential, right? The people who grow the food, who stock the supermarkets, who, who, who bring the food back and forth, who, who uh, make sure the electrical lines work, make sure the, uh, the internet works, make sure that, uh, that the, uh, the garbage is picked up. All of those people, they didn't lock down. How could they? Because they actually are essential to our normal everyday life. Our, the working class is incredibly important to, to, uh, to regular everyday life. We locked down to protect a, 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 a certain class of people, the rich, right? The laptop class. It was a luxury of the rich. And, and you can see this in poor countries. Uh, Peru 
had a, a military style lockdown that was in, like unlike any anything else in, in the rest, rest of the world. It had it, it resulted in countless poor people dying from things other than COVID, right. starvation, um, and uh, uh, it didn't stop COVID either. And didn't stop COVID either. And it didn't stop COVID either. Right. Uh, be, and so that's that's the thing. Like people thought about lockdowns as a as a magic bullet because, look, well, I, I can't spread the disease to you for for apart from each other. But that's not the reality of lockdown. The reality of lockdown is a certain class of people is protected uh, and the rest of society uh, is exposed. Yeah, I'm, I'm from Brazil originally. And I remember thinking about about if you've ever been to a slum in Brazil or to taking a bus in a poor neighborhood in Brazil, which, which I have. <laughs> Uh, and the notion that, oh, no, no, people are going to just stay home and that's going to solve the problem. Well, home is much more crowded. Uh, yeah. th those places are very crowded. And you know what? There's no way that's not going to just rip through a neighborhood, which, again, it, the world got a little bit more dangerous once the virus came along. There's a new pathogen against humans and it, it just it just worked. Right. <laughs> They're really good at, 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 at going around. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's, the notion it's, that we're able to stop it through. Uh, asking people to go home in poor in poor countries it, it was was just unbelievably naive, uh, and maybe maybe good for university professors like you and me, but uh, not not for most of the people in the world, right? So yeah. let me go back to the to the to the the seroprevalence studies that then you were in the first ones to try to get information on that. How many people basically try to look for prevalence of antibodies in people's in people's uh, bloods so that to see how many people got exposed already in the early early days. So I think you got out with a study in uh, was Los Angeles and and somewhere in the Bay Area. Is that right? Yeah. So the uh, Santa Clara County and then L.A. County. And what, what was the finding, the main finding then? Right. So we did we did these studies in early April of 2020. Um, and what, as you said, we what we did is we got uh, populations like samples in from the from, from the population, um, community dwelling populations, both places uh, where uh, we looked for antibodies specific to SARS-CoV-2 virus, the virus that causes COVID. And what we found is that there were 50 times more infections than cases, between 40 and 50 times more infections than cases. Uh, you know, we weren't testing a ton back then. And so it's in some sense, not surprising. This is a respiratory virus that spreads very rapidly, very easily, uh, which we know now by aerosols and droplets and things. Um, and uh, the, uh, the, fact, the, the, the fact that we weren't picking up infections is not that surprising, especially since most infections result in relatively mild disease. The, 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 the severe disease outcomes that we see, the, the, the viral pneumonia we see, that's a small subset of cases, it turns out. Uh, we didn't know that until we did the study. Um, and so there, uh, there's a few things that we found. So one is that the prevalence in, uh, in California, in, in the big, you know, so big regions of California like Barry and LA was something like three or 4% of the population in April of 2020. Now that doesn't seem like a big number. In one sense, it's not. That means there's a very large fraction of the population still quite still susceptible to the disease. I mean, that it so in a sense, it predicted that there was going to be a, this was going to be a long epidemic. Uh, on the other sense, it's actually a pretty large number, right? Three or four percent. The disease, like the start date in the U.S. was supposedly January 2020, late January 2020. Um, in just two or three months, it, it, we'd gotten to four percent of the population had infected undetected um, in L.A. I mean, that's a pretty large number, actually. Um, and what it, what it meant is that the, the kind of idea that we had, which was like, let's just test everybody, isolate them, and then uh, contact trace, and that'll stop our that disease. Out of the bag already, right? yeah. Could not have worked. It was, right. we knew that from the, the four, if it was 0.4%, maybe, 
but even then it'd be difficult because the, the, the disease, you can spread it even if you don't have very, very many symptoms. Um, and then, so that, that we knew from, from that. And then the third thing we learned from that is that the infection fatality rate for the community dwelling population, at least was, was, you know, the survival is like 99.8%, 0.2% infection fatality rate. Uh, we also, there also saw in it a, a, a steep age gradient that's actually is the most important factor about the disease. Older people have a, th a thousand times or more likely of dying if they get infected than younger people. So from the very beginning, um, you could see that the, the parameters being set in some of the epidemiology models that were predicting millions and millions of deaths in the US, for example, were, were just not, not necessarily uh, within the sort of acceptable range. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think mean, numbers people that already infected and the, 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 the implied infection fatality rate at that point. Correct. Yeah. So I think, I think the infection fatality rate assumed by the, uh, by the Imperial College model for the U.S. was like 0.9%, uh, which is off by a factor of, you know, four and a half. Um, the other, the, and the, the millions of deaths predicted, it was interesting, those models were predicting if you did nothing, millions would die within months. Right. Um, so, uh, I mean, I think it, it uh, what I'd hoped was that people that were populating those parameters, of those models would, would update based on this. And uh, some did, but for for large part, it sort of that that didn't happen. Um, in fact, there was a lot of there was a lot of like uh, uh, folks attacking your study and trying to poke holes in it, and not necessarily try to see what the message really was out of that study, but rather try to say, oh, this is just a try to portray you as somehow a I don't know propagandist or a Trump supporter that wanted to somehow you know fight the lockdowns or whatever. And that tell us a little bit about that because I remember having having a lot of. Uh, uh, reading a lot of criticisms that were, that were just, yeah, um, I mean, I think, uh, like I have mixed feelings about, it. like, I think some of the, some of the discussion was actually quite productive, but some of it was just nasty uh, and, and counterproductive to, to and, and a lot of it, I think, stemmed from the desire not to believe the result. Um, so uh, the, let me start with the good. Um, so the, the first thing, the first, one of the first uh, criticisms I saw uh, was like a, by a, um, I forget the name of this guy on Twitter, um, who who said that look if there's a there's a possibility, um, so we we used a test kit that uh, checked for the, the 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 antibodies in the pop, in, in in your blood right, but every medical test has some errors, false positive errors and false negative errors, and we had three thousand people that we checked in Santa Clara County, fifty of whom were positive, and. Um, now, the reason we got the three percent is you have to adjust for the demographics of the population. This, the way we did the sampling, we had to. So, but anyways, like the raw number is fifty positives, three thousand people. And uh, what he said was, look, uh, given what we know about the test kit they're using, the false positive rate that the manufacturer reported was ninety nine. Well, the false positive rate was 0.5%. percent. Um, that means that there's some possibility that all fifty false positives were were false positives. Now it turns out we actually had a formula to adjust for that, for the, the observed false positive rate, and uh, it also you have to account for the false negative rate because the, the, the false negative rate is like uh, was was point was ten percent or something on that order 10-15%. So you know you have to adjust for both simultaneously, and the estimates that we reported were correct were, were correct for for that for those for false positive false negative, but there was a big fight over the standard error around this. Um, and uh, the key thing to the standard error is how confident are you that that false positive rate is 0.5%? So the, the, the manufacturer had done 
uh, the way you check for that is you say, okay, let's use blood from 2018. We know is negative, run it against the test kit. And if there's any positives, it must be false. Um, that's what the manufacturer done something like that. Um, and it turned out that they had like 400 samples and four of, of them were, I mean, it was a very, very, very small number. Like it was of two of them were, I mean, I forget exactly the numbers, but it was a very small number of, 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 of false positives. Uh, but that's only 400 samples. That, that, that actually leaves quite a bit of wide standard errors still contributed by the sampling error in the false positive rate measurement. Um, it's like a little bit statistically complicated, but it, it, so what, what we, the Twitter, when we released the study on, on, um, on a, a Met Archive, this open, open access uh, sort of uh, uh, preprint server, Twitter exploded. The, I got a thousand referee reports overnight. It was, uh, anyone who's ever had a three referee reports to deal with can understand my, my, my anxiety. Um, and uh, I, I uh, but you know, like constructive things started happening. People started giving us, it turns out labs around the world were evaluating this test kit and they sent us their evaluations. And we went from having 400 evaluations of this test kit to having 3000 or more evaluations of this test kit for the false positive rate. And so, and it turned out the, the manufacturers were right. It was like 0.5%, even after 3000. And that tightened the standard errors um, so we released the second version with the, with sort of tighter standard errors, uh, but people still don't believe it, right? They, a lot of people, including very, some very bright people, uh, were convinced that there was very low prevalence, maybe zero, and they they were they were fought very hard to maintain that on the left edge of the confidence interval that you could have had zero prevalence. Right. Uh, the thing was that like it just seemed like nonsense. A thousand people had already uh, gotten the disease in Santa Clara County. In April of 2020, like a case. There was a positive cases, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so the, the, there was no reasonable sort of Bayesian prior that leads you to say, okay, there might you might be zero. I mean, that's just if you if you did that, then you just you're falsified by the just the basic observation of the data. Um, but wasn't there, already wasn't already motivated in reasoning at that point because there were so many people committed to the ideas of the policies being put forward that they couldn't. I mean, your 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 statements at that point say, listen, these policies are not going to necessarily work out. The prevalence yeah. is high already. It's not as bad as you're saying from the models that are justifying the lockdown. But if they dug their heels in and say, "Oh no, 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 we have this has to be true because we know the answer," and they, it was it was like middle of April 2020 when we released it. We already had a month of lockdown, um, and it already started to produce some of the catastrophic effects we were talking about. Um, and so, if we lock down for nothing, well, I mean, a lot of very smart people have egg on their face then, right? Um, and uh, you could. You do one of two things. You can say, okay, well, here's what the data say. Let's let's uh, alter our strategy on the basis of it. You could you could it would even be reasonable to say, look, uh, it's only one study. Why don't we look for more studies? Right. Well, let's let's rapidly do a, a, an incredible number of these seroprevalence studies, and then take those those studies together and see what happens um, before we before we like adjust our policy. I mean, that that I think would have, would have been a reasonable thing. But instead, what happened was they they, they a lot of people. A lot of very bright people essentially closed their minds mm. to the possibility that uh, the disease had already spread so widely. Um, uh, and it's the fun, there were actually some seroprevalence studies that were done uh, around the world. Hundreds of hundreds of them actually were done. Uh, and when you do a uh, like Johnny Needy did a, a, a uh, an analysis, a meta analysis of them, and the median infection fatality rate was something like 0.2 percent worldwide. 
especially in, in younger population. Now, in places that have older populations, you have a much higher infection fatality rate, right? So New York City, which exposed all these um, poor folks living, uh, like, uh, living in nursing homes, to home, right? cities, they had a much higher infection fatality rate. Uh, why? Because the, the, the set of people exposed, they didn't protect the vulnerable. They didn't protect the old. Um, so that's why they had such a high infection fatality rate early in the disease. In the, in the, whereas Africa, for instance, where less than 3% of the population is over the age of 65, has had a very low infection fatality rate. Worldwide is 0.2%. Um, if you want to know what the infection fatality rate was in Santa Clara County in 2020, or April to early 2020, in a community dwelling population, I mean, where else are you going to look? We had, we're the only ones that did a, did a measurement there. The fact that the CDC, the US CDC, has not followed up with systematic seroprevalence studies continuously so that we can have an understanding of how widespread immunity is in the population is baffling to me. Right, right. I mean, if I, exactly. I think that there was a, a focusing on estimating precisely the infection fatality rate became again somehow a questioning of the policies in place. And at some point, it became no longer about that. You know, you don't need to justify the policies based on the severity of the disease and how many people it kills, really. But rather, it became a thing about cases, and and and, and you know, uh, uh, because it was no longer judicious, right, for them to to be focusing on that, right? Once the because at the end, I think you you and Neonides have been vindicated on on the the IFR here. In fact, if anything, the IFR keeps going down, down, and down, given our ability to treat and and so on, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think uh, it's 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 really the uh, the policy that's still uh, and like so um, it has me shocked. Like uh, again, if you don't agree with the estimates we did, fine. But you have to you you really should want to know how widespread the disease is, and the only real tool we have for that is these seroprevalence studies. Why did the CDC? They still don't have systematic seroprevalence studies that are tracking for for uh, representative populations. Uh, in the U and the, the, India has better ones than the U.S. does. Uh, large, large, lots and lots of other countries have much better tra this uh, tracking of these kinds of uh, basic th stats than we do. So one one uh, um, premise of a lot of the the models that were being fo put forward to justify the policies in place um, was was that there's nothing that we can do. There's a lot of uh, susceptibility in the population. This thing's going to grow exponentially. And it's going to have a peak, and then it's going to come down. I mean, all those models, all of them, to the, to I looked at, I think almost all of them, uh, would predict one peak. They would just go up exponentially, and and would all of them predicted that would outpace our capacity to handle people sick, and therefore we need to do something really, really strong right now to flatten the curve. That's what they, the way they they they, they phrase this thing, right? Um, and at first it was two weeks, but Two weeks became two months and became six months and some places became like nonstop, right? Uh, but what was very clear, well, that's not very clear. So I remember kind of buying into the, the notion that, okay, these, these models are not necessarily bad descriptions of the world, but they might have bad parameters. And in the beginning of it, I was reading reading your work and other, other folks thinking maybe it's just a matter of the parameters being wrong. And what we're seeing in reality is not as bad as, as, as what those models are predicting, but it's gonna go up and down. So when things start happening in Texas, I remember, uh, so Texas, we, we did a six weeks, a very short, I think, lockdown in, 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 late, in late March, early in April. And then by May 1st, May 1st, 2020, Texas kind of came back to normal. And, you know, we had had a little bleep of disease here. We haven't had a big, a big impact yet. And then, you know, summer come, I think was maybe after Memorial Day, things start happening and we get our first flare up or our first wave which was a, you know, a bad wave that, that killed a lot of people. Um, 
And I was thinking at that point in time that, well, this wave is going to come and it's going to go just like a lot of those models are predicting. And then we, we're done with it. It's just a matter of how tall that peak is going to be. Even that wave, as severe as it was and as stressful as it was, and I'm sure it was very stressful for doctors and nurses and working in places, it was not overwhelming to a point that said, okay, our hospital, you know, we stopped caring for people. And I don't think we faced really that in almost anywhere in the US, maybe very small situations where, where that took place. But then talking to you around the same time, you said you made a comment of, of to me that I think was something that you know I never thought about before. You said, well, people are misinterpreting what herd immunity means. They keep talking about herd immunity being, okay, we're going to reach this point where there's people start infecting less than one person, less than one on average, and therefore this thing's going to come down. And I thought, yeah, we're going to turn down and, and then we're going to be over. You said herd immunity is environmental. Uh, it depends on the conditions and 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 lo and behold the fall comes along and you know up we go again right uh we heard we got to herd immunity but it's, it's not fixed it's not a fixed thing and we kept seeing this now we keep seeing this going over and over and over again and none of the models were saying that to us in the beginning none of the models that justify lockdown were told us listen this is going to be an endless set of waves because that's it yeah and I think that would be very hard to justify what we did if they were saying basically that, like, listen, there'll be waves and they're going to come and they're going to come again and come again and come again, right? And I think in your thinking in the Great Bar Barrington Declaration and, and the sort of like focusing on protecting the vulnerable, that was part of the thinking, right? Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely part of the thinking. I mean, it's, it's, this is uh, very clearly a seasonal and regional disease. Some regions get hit for certain seasons. Um, so, so, for instance, New Zealand and Australia were hit in March 2020 during their summer, during low COVID season, which explains why they were able to get the cases so low uh, for, for extended periods of time with the lockdown. Um, uh, the, the, uh, and, you know, of course, they're islands. Um, the, the, uh, the, the, the thing about the, the uh, way this disease is, like you, the best model really is to look at the other coronaviruses. Uh, there is herd immunity to the other coronaviruses, but, but the way it works is complicated. Um, the threshold for herd immunity is high during, during the high COVID season and low during low COVID season. So you need a larger fraction of population immune during the high season for the disease not to spread. Uh, and you need a lower fraction immune during, when, during the low season for it not to spread. This, the, the immunity this, once you're infected and you're covered, uh, and we now know from like extensive data from like excellent studies out of like Qatar, Israel, uh, a whole bunch of other places that at one year, the reinfection rate is something like somewhere between 0.3 and 1%. So if you get infected and you, uh, and you recover, only about 1% of the, of the time will you be reinfected within a year. Uh, and when you get reinfected, it's much milder. Um, but if you get reinfected, you can still spread the disease, right? Um, and so, so like there's the, you get, uh, and then the vaccine also provides some, for a limited time, some protection against infection. Ironically, it's only, I think only a few, few months, maybe three, four months that it, that it provides any substantial protection against reinfection. By six months, it's like 20% efficacy against infections. But still uh, protects I mean, I, against severe disease. Yeah, still protects against severe disease. Uh, the vaccine is very worthwhile for that. I mean, that's why, in fact, it's, it's, it's a perfect tool for focus protection, right. uh, much less good for, for, for herd immunity. Um, and so you're going to get these waves. You're going to get, uh, you know, if you get, uh, and, and when you had a, a completely immune naive population like we did in March 2020, you're going to get a massive wave, uh, almost no matter what you do. 
we had this illusion of control that the lockdown will stop the spread of the disease. It doesn't actually, didn't actually succeed at doing that, obviously. And, and it was very odd to see public health officials attribute to their actions the rise and fall of the disease. Um, you know, you, and they, they, then, then you see like someone like Tony Fauci go on the air saying, oh, I don't know why Texas, it went down in Texas when they didn't do very much. Oh, I don't know why it went down in Florida, why they didn't do it very much. It's, it's, it's just a mystery to me. Um, I mean, it, 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 was, it was as if they thought they could control the, 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 where the ocean went. Right, right. That's the, that's, that's the, 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 the hubris is still shocking to me. And the hubris is um, still there. I mean, it's still this, 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 uh, whether it's masks, whether it is, is statements of social distancing, statements like the things about travel restrictions, it's like, uh, what, are, what are we hoping to accomplish with this? I'm, I'm going to visit my family in Brazil uh, next week, and I, me and my two kids and my wife, we all have to test before we go, and we're all vaccinated. We have to test before we come back. I was like, what are we really hoping to accomplish? Not in fact, yeah, I mean, I think the fact, like, if, you have, if you're not sick, just why, what's the purpose of the testing? You're all vaccinated. Um, I mean, right. so you, you don't face any undue risk. And there's disease and, there and there's disease here. So it's not like, you yes. know, we're not trying to stop the disease uh, transport between one country and the other. It's just like, this is happening everywhere. It's endemic everywhere, essentially. So what yeah, and, and so I think that's I think that's just it, Carlos. I mean, we have to accept that the disease is here to stay. And then the question is, how do we manage that risk? And that was the idea of the Great Parenting Declaration. How do you manage that risk, given that, we don't have a technology to stop the disease from spreading. Right. Um, what we do have is, uh, and, and now at the time in October, 2020, we didn't have the vaccine. Vaccines either, that's right. Um, but we did have was, uh, you know, sort of we, knowledge of who was most vulnerable. And so there you could say, look, uh, in the places where most vulnerable people are, let's try to reduce the risk of spread there. Since it's not possible in the population at large, right? So just a very simple thing. Um, if you're, uh, if you're, uh, if you, <laughs> if, if you understand the, that the, the key constraint is the protection of older vulnerable people, then you would never send an old vulnerable COVID infected patients back to a nursing home right. in order to save a hospital bed. The, the mistake was they didn't understand what the, what the key constraint was. The key constraint was protection of the vulnerable, not keeping hospital beds open. They, they optimized against the wrong thing. Um, or, but there were lots of other, per, uh, that's a negative thing to do, but, but, but there's also like other positive things one could have done. Like, so we could have offered free home delivery of groceries to every single older person in the United States, right? That's a very simple thing. That way they don't have to go out and get groceries uh, and be exposed potentially. Um, we could have, we, uh, there's something we, that some, many places did do with, uh, with, you know, sort of varying degrees of success is, uh, doing better with nursing homes, protecting nursing homes, reducing staff rotations, uh, a whole bunch of things. I mean, there's a, there's a, the thing is, is like what I expected with the Great Barrington Declaration was that local public health would join in trying to use creative ways to think about how to protect the vulnerable within their own communities. Because it really depends on the living circumstances of the vulnerable people. It's going to differ from place to what the, the right solution in Brazil will be very different than the right solution in LA County or, or Santa Clara County. And local public health is in much better position than, uh, than than I am to like dictate for the entire world how to do that. Um, but to just to say that the only way to protect the vulnerable is to stop community spread. I mean, that effectively is just saying give, I give up because right. we don't know how to stop community spread. We don't have a technology to stop community spread. And I love the I love the sort of paradox between this incredibly blunt instrument of 
the solution is lockdown and they kept emphasizing that and you know uh, i think every public health not public health but every epidemiologist that i've talked to or i saw speaking was always emphasizing no we need to do more lockdowns and more putting people away and so on and then and then somehow buying into the panacea of masks it's like really cloth masks that that that's uh I mean, I can see the mechanism with which might be helpful and reduce things, but like that is not as- Carlos, even there, uh, so there, like in March, 2020, um, there was a large literature on, and well-developed literature on masks on the spread of the flu. Right. And, uh, you know, a, with good randomized studies, dozens of them. And the conclusion was uh, that masks do not stop the spread of the flu. With, with like the exception of like, if you're wearing N95, right, right, right. you're trained, you're in a hospital, then, then maybe you, you have some effect, but like cloth masks, no, even surgical masks, no. And the reason is very simple, me me mechanically, right? So the flu is spread by aerosols. Aerosols are like clouds, droplets, like rain. Uh, they, they hang around, right? In the room. And so like filtration systems might, might remove them. But if you have a stagnant air, uh, you're breathing out the, if you've ever worn glasses and worn a mask, your glasses get fogged up. Fog, That's right. the aerosol coming out. Um, and they come out the sides. So no matter how well the mask does in fil filtering out the, 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 the air that comes out, out that back and forth, there's still escape out the sides and back. It sits in the air and then it spreads. Right, but, and I think, but people have this idea somehow is linear, right? That, that, oh, you know, because you, some of it might be trapped here, therefore it's going to help. And it, it's not linear. It's a threshold situation, right? Where yeah. enough comes out, there's enough hanging around, you're going to pass it on, right? But so that, that once we knew it was aerosolized, which we suspected very early on, then that lends itself to much, much different set of, of interventions, right? So then what you do is you upgrade filtration systems in public spaces, you, I mean, that we spent six trillion dollars. Uh, how much did we actually spend on that? I mean, I, it's like vanishingly low. Oh, and right. instead of like, like recommending a, a solution that really isn't a solution, where large amounts of, of experience through decades have found that that it doesn't is not particularly effective these masks, and it had become politically divisive. Oh, right. I guess, I guess you, you see the, uh, the the best example of the effectiveness of the air filtration system is the airplanes. Nobody yeah. gets COVID in airplanes. It's an incredibly tight space. There's no bad, there is, those are not super spreaders ever. We hear anything about airplanes because they have a very effective filtration system, right? Yeah. Um, the other one is outside, like very, very rarely oh, yes. do you get outdoor transmission, right? Because, you know, nature has provided us a, a fantastic filtration system. Um, right. So, <laughs> I, I mean, I think uh, uh, it, it, it was, it is like absolutely shocking. Like we, we landed on a, a solution with almost no evidence certainly no good evidence that that it, that it works um and uh it's politically divisive it's created this talismanic division between pe people uh whether where like the, it's essentially a matter of faith it does it work or not right. work right um and uh instead of effective things that we knew could work we gave up on it um so let's talk about now just that uh, we are in the, the midst of omicron as our new you know Again, the, the stoking fears in the media and everywhere is that somehow this is going to come back again. It's going to be 10 times more, 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 more infective, uh, infectious. And, and here we are again. So what are your thoughts on where we are in terms of the, this current wave and, and what happens next? Yeah, so uh, the, the, this is an uh, RNA virus. It, RNA viruses, whenever they, whenever they replicate, they, they, they get errors and mutate. Um, most of the time, those mutations 
disable the virus, do nothing to the virus or disable it. Or uh, Very occasionally, it'll you'll come up with a random mutation that has some selective advantage in the environment it sees. Um, I mean, the theory is that, that and at least the preliminary evidence is that Omicron is an, uh, it has some mild selective advantage. It seems like it's it seems like it's it's more infectious than the Delta, which it seems to be starting to replace. Although Delta is still the predominant variant worldwide, um, that is going to happen over and over again. Right? This is that is the nature of these RNA viruses. We are going to see forever a a, a new new variations new variants. I mean, we'll have to come up with some nomenclature after we, after we reach Omega or something. <laughs> Um, Double the, delta, you know, it's like that, yeah. Yeah, well, alpha squared or something. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so uh, I don't think that uh, I think that uh, like if 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 the media and public health panic every time there's a new variant, we're going to be panic at infinitum into in, in, forever. So the question isn't whether the 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 uh, the presence of a new variant that's starting to spread. Is, 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 is something to, to, I mean, that's not the thing to worry about. The thing to worry about is, does the variant escape prior natural immunity produced by natural prior, prior infection? Does the variant escape uh, protection against uh, severe disease provided by the vaccines? That's it. That's the only thing to worry about. Does it produce more severe disease? And it's, so far we have little evidence of that, right? Yeah, so far. So, I mean, so far there, now there, I'm not, I mean, you know, I mean, obviously we should still like be careful. It's possible. It's possible. Yeah, it's possible. Like it's because I mean, I think many of the people that have been infected have been have been younger people, so they're likely to have mild disease anyways. So I don't, I haven't seen age-adjusted mortality. I certainly, I haven't seen infection fatality rates with zero problems backed up around it for for uh, for the, for, for uh, the mortality rate of, of Omicron. Um, uh, so you know, we'll see. But I, I, I mean, right now the the the, the news looks hopeful. Um, it, in some sense, not surprising. Like the the sequence of variants have seemed like they've been tending in the direction of less severe, and, and it doesn't. It might evade infection blocking immunity. So if you had the vaccine, you can get in, you can get infected, but it doesn't seem like it's evading the the protection against severe disease. Uh, that was true. I think for the Delta, it was true for Alpha. It was. I mean, the 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 immune evasion. Um, which a lot of a lot of the data about immunization comes from like st studies in, in in vitro to see if the if if you produces an, like antibody like does doesn't it does it, uh, are you producing antibodies to the uh, to the new strain, but that's not enough to suggest that you don't have protection against severe disease, even if the antibody production is lower, or right. the antibody neutralization is lower, whatever. Um, what's it, what you need is empirical data about how does it actually, what, it, what actually happens when people actually are infected with it? How likely is it, given their age, uh, that, they, that they end up in the hospital or they die? Um, uh, I think um, like the public health messaging around this needs to, needs to change fundamentally, right? It cannot be the case that every time there's a variant, we, we panic the population um, into doing useless things that didn't actually work before and have incredible harm. Right, uh, it's it's uh, a lot of the policy malfunction comes from essentially the re recollection of the fear that we had in March of 2020. Right. Let's tap back into that over and over again. It's it's a recipe for continuing these lockdown harms without actually have do, have doing much for the, uh, stopping the harm from the virus. Well, at least I, I feel that that in the U.S. so far uh, we have not 
uh, try to re, re re double down on some bad policies at least so far. Uh, which is, I mean, <laughs> in the right, right, Europe, Europe is Texas. Back, right? Oh well, yeah, Europe has gone. I mean, like they've gone into these vaccine passports, this militarized biosecurity state kind of response. Yeah, and lockdowns uh, again. I mean, schools are closed in some countries right now. And yeah, I, I think it's. I, I mean, it's one of these things where like it's the countries that were praised the highest for their ability to stop the virus. Yes. Uh, I mean, it's kind of, they put themselves in a, in a policy cul-de-sac because there's no policy that stops the virus. We have no technology to stop the virus. Um, so, they, and now uh, every time the virus, so like New Zealand and Australia are perfect examples. Um, they've actually been quite successful at vaccinating population. They could open up and they have about as good protection as anywhere else, anywhere else does. Um, but they keep locking down. They keep, they, like I heard in Northern Australia that they had opened up a concentration camp to, uh, for contacts of, of people who were, who, were, who were infected and even for people who, were, who, had, who had the disease. Um, I mean, essentially like broad, wide scale violations of civil liberties and uh, in, or, in order to stop the virus from spreading, the virus is still spreading. Um, you know, I, I actually in, in Australia, New Zealand, I predict that the, the virus will, will slow down and you'll, you will, you'll, you'll have less spreading. Why? Because there's summer is coming. Right. That's right. The seasonal component of it is going to, is going to trump this, right? Yeah. Um, so let's go back to the, 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 the academy. Um, I just, uh, I mean, it seems that a lot of what happened in terms of, of was, was like a, um, like a, it's not, not what is it like a, like a herd mentality type problem where there was one solution, there was one thing that people thought that's the only way to think about this problem. And anybody that, that and, and that's maybe fine that everybody goes into one direction and stop thinking about, you know, critically about other potential opportunities to understand the situation in front of you and make different decisions. But what's really scary is that when a few start saying, wait a second, maybe there's a different way to look at this. Maybe there's other things we need to consider. Maybe there's other alternatives to what we're facing here. Um, it seems that we, we found ourselves in a perfect storm where that became uh, like religion, where you couldn't question things, you couldn't ask questions, you couldn't uh, propose alternative solutions. And if you did, you're going to start being attacked very severely. Um, I mean, I, I suffer a little bit of this, but nothing of the scale that you did during the last year or so. So starting from your study, there was a lot of perhaps, you know, you, you mentioned the positive criticism, but there was a lot of ad hominy. There was a lot of uh, direct attacks on you at that point in the very early days of April. And then, and then after the Great Barrington Declaration, it became, that's a, that was a different level, right? Of, of, of scrutiny on, on your statements and so on. So why? What, what about our system? What about our, our the scholar, procedure, scholarly procedure that we have these days that sort of lent itself to, to that? What, what, what's your take on it? I mean, I think uh, this, the, 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 the reaction of the scientific community and the policy community to the, the virus has, has exposed deep problems within science itself. Right? I think that uh, science, uh, like, you know, I, I actually have been working on science policy before the pandemic. Um, like one of the findings from my work before was that science had become much more conservative in its willingness to, to explore new ideas. Um, and uh, they'd done a series of studies to try to, to show that, for instance, the NIH was, 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 uh, uh, was funding uh, like older and older ideas over, over the last, I mean, like over time that, that uh, and you know, we started to reward scientists based on influence, like, uh, like you know, how many citations you have 
rather than the like trying new ideas. I mean, in, you had like this two worlds, like in VC world, you have, oh, try new things out. If it's failed, that's fine. Because failure is actually a, a route to like learning. So you get better, so you have more success later, right? Um, whereas in science, we, we've gotten to this point where like, oh, if you, you shouldn't be trying, you, you should, if you try brand new ideas out, you're going to get, you're going to get pummeled, right? Because um, what, what, like I said on NIH review panels, where I see this all the time in NIH review panels, Every time there's a proposal with a with something that's like a little bit out there because the the the, the author or the, the investigator is thinking in a, in a way different than the scientific literature. Although you're supposed to reward innovation, what happened routinely is the reviewers would just pound on it, say, "Oh, that's this couldn't possibly work." And reviewers, of course, have an invested interest in the existing sort of paradigm just to to not be challenged. Um, of course, science requires that kind of challenge, regular upheaval. It requires being open-minded to, to the possibility that every the way I think about the world is is not the right is not the truth, and that that we you've discovered a new way of, of a new set of fa of like experiments that lead you in a different direction, which makes the statement "follow the science" particularly problematic, right? Yeah, I mean si because science is exactly it's it's like science is all it should be when it's functioning well is a dialectical process. I believe A, you believe B, we. Try to gather evidence, and yep, yep. Yeah, look, we devise an experiment to decide between us. It turns out that B is right. I'd be like, oh, I go, oh man, and I buy you dinner, and then then I say, no, no, not B, C, and then and then we move from that, right? Um, what what happened in science is instead uh, a uh, a sort of like a high priesthood. I mean, you, you brought up the the, the the analogy of religion. Frankly, I'm you know I'm 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 Christian, and there's much more free discussion about. Christianity within the church than there is in science, I think, in some, in some sense. Um, so like you have uh, someone like Tony Fauci, he gets up there and says, he's, I am the science. I mean, he, he effectively is saying he's the high priest of science. He's right. the Pope. There is no Pope in science. There is nobody who has the authority to, to, to say, uh, this is true and that you shall not ch challenge me. Um, and actually there are, concrete policy reasons why I think this has happened. So like Tony, take Tony Fauci, for instance, he's in charge of a vast amount of money that funds the work of very prominent epidemiologists, immunologists, virologists within the scientific community focused on infectious disease. If they step out of line, I, the, in that case, what, what I mean by step out of line in this sense is like they don't follow the, the the priorities of the, of the of the National Institute of Health, that the, the part of the National Institute of Health, that this, then then their likelihood of getting grants is going to get low. Yeah, right. Um, their likelihood of getting and if they don't get the grants, they can't publish. They can't. Then that means that they can't get grants. Um, it's 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 it feeds on itself. It's it's is central to their careers that they uh, figure out what the NIH wants and then work to give it to them. At the same time, you have Tony Fauci who's in charge of COVID policy. It's not that much of a stretch to understand why so many scientists stayed silent, even if they thought that this, these policies were not were a mistake. Their careers were at risk. You have a you've created this conflict of interest by putting the same person in charge of scientific funding as as science, as COVID policy. Right. Um, and this happened with, for instance, the the Jeremy Farrar and the Wellcome Trust in the UK. Bill Gates, um, same same thing. Right. You had these people who are incredibly influential on COVID policy who are also funding science. There needs to be a wall of separation between policy and scientific. <laughs> funding. 
um, the same people shouldn't be in charge of both because um, you create this like conflict of interest. And um, on top of that, you have this environment where like uh, science has moved from this norm of free discussion. I mean, it, fo it follows the cultural. I mean, I think I think the culture has moved this this this, this way as well. Like somehow um, so you've moralized the discussion so that if I believe A and it's out of line, it's not just that I believe A and I'm wrong. I'm 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 evil, right? For some sets of, A, of, of 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 propositions that were A, and a lot of like the the COVID discussion came around that if you believe that lockdowns won't work. Well, that means that you must be in favor of the 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 the, the uh, of like letting the disease spread. All you care about is money. You're evil. And a lot of the smearing, and this, and you know, scientists were subject to this too. Like that, a lot of scientists engaged in this, this sort of smearing. I got, I, I don't know how many. Email, I wrote a, a op-ed in March of 2020, saying that we don't yet know how widespread the disease is and how what the what the infection fatality rate is. And I got emails from, I mean, I thought friends at the university asking me why I care about money so much. Right. I mean, I didn't get money paid for that op-ed. I don't, I, I mean, I don't, I'm a health economist because I, I care about the vulnerable, right? That's why I spent my career. I, I don't, I'm not, like money is not the reason. I don't, I don't believe that uh, optimization of so society means maximizing the total amount of money. I believe it maxim means uh, sort of providing opportunities for well-being for, for, for as much as possible given that there are no solutions, only trade-offs, um, right? I think uh, it's always like, how do you manage those trade-offs? How do you expand the pie? I mean, how, that's that's what economics and health economics has always been about to me. So, so um, but let, let, me, let, me, let me subject, su submit a, a proposal here of an idea of why this happened as well. Um, our institutions, of, of our scientific institutions and our universities have slowly and but surely uh, developed into a monoculture that is very left-leaning very, very left-leaning. And one of the characteristics of the left is the sort of like not accepting the idea of a budget constraint. If you don't accept the idea of a budget constraint, you don't think there are trade-offs. And, 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 you know, and I think that that's just the sort of like, yes, lockdown, what is the trade-offs? What is a big deal? And that becomes the sort of, again, the monoculture is that, yes, that is, that, that's it, no problem. Even amongst economists, there was a sort of like, no, 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 it's okay. That's, that's, it's fine. It, it's not, their cost, the cost's not going to be too high. And you start finding like arguments to, um, arguments to the extent of like, no, no, no. But the cost of, of if you, even if you don't lock down officially, people are not going to go out. So, so the policy are not doing much. That's what it is. And there's no, there's no uh, effect to the policy in place and so on. I wonder how much of that is it has to do with the monoculture because you mentioned the monoculture, the funding connections and so on on the on the between the funding and the and the and the people uh, potentially in charge of policy, but within our universities, how much of that is the, the sort of monoculture that has been created already? I mean, I think the the monoculture either on the left or right is a problem, right? Right. I mean, I think um, you know like vigorous debates over between left leaning professors and right leaning professors about whether something really is a constraint. Are really productive. That's important, right? Yeah, um, and I think I think the key thing is the is the is the moralization and demonization of a uh, uh, moralization of the debate and the demonization of opposing ideas that comes and is permitted when there is a monoculture. Like if if uh, a professor, a left leaning professor, has never really engaged seriously with someone on the right, and they have this caricature of what someone on the right really is, is that that doesn't actually match reality, it's very easy to demonize them. Right. Um, I mean, I, uh, I personally, 
never signed up for a political party and still haven't because I wanted to, I, and I'm in public, in, in public health, I'm in, in health economics. I figured I would have results that would sometimes make the right happy, sometimes make the left happy. I, do, I honestly can't predict what- Ahead where of my, time, right? Yeah. Yeah, I just, I just can't. Um, and so I figured I want to be able to uh, communicate the results to anybody without having this po politics get in the way of this, where people like judge me based on my politics. Um, I mean, ironically, like, because I, I mean, just over, during the course of the, the pandemic, people have judged me based on what they assume to be my politics, that right. where they don't really know what my politics are. Um, why? Because they, it's so easy to demoralize the other if you are in a monoculture, to demonize the other if you are in a monoculture. Um, and, and so weirdly enough, the left, which had produced this like discourse of, of, of uh, let's not demonize the other, have, have in fact engaged in demonizing the other, where the other is, you know, people on the you know, people that don't agree with them, people on the right. So anything uh, particular to you at Stanford that happened during this time? Uh, was Stanford supportive of your efforts or, or, or just like not really? Was it antagonistic to your efforts? I mean, during the, during the Santa Clara study days, uh, we, Stanford was actively hostile. They actively worked to suppress my academic freedom in ways that I'm going to try to write and talk more about it. I, I mostly have avoided talking about it because I didn't have the emotional bandwidth to both uh, fight a fight about mm -hmm. academic freedom at Stanford while also fighting a major fight over the lockdowns. Um, uh, but I, I want to turn my attention to it. I do believe that the universities play a fundamentally important role in discourse in society, in, in our society, and it's right now they're playing a poisoning role, um, and I, 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 I want to turn my attention to that uh, as the lockdowns. I mean, I think as 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 the consensus is starting to emerge that the lockdowns were destructive without actually having stopped the disease from spreading. Um, I mean, I think that 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 I can start to I can in good conscience turn toward the academic freedom fight. Um, Stanford uh, Stanford did, acted in ways to uh, in ad hoc ways to suppress the results from the Santa Clara to, to aid and abet the demonization of the, the, set, the study, study authors, including me and Johnny um, and, uh, and And, and in, in general have, has done almost everything, uh, everything it can to, to, to not live up to its ideals of academic freedom during, the con during this uh, last, uh, the, this last two years. Um, and uh, it's a source of great sadness to me. I've been at Stanford for 35 years. I mean, I arrived when I was 18. Uh, I, I've always thought of it as a place of, of free freedom. You know, the, the, the motto is let the winds of freedom blow in German, which I can't pronounce. Um, uh, it, it's so it's, it, it, and I've loved that. And for most of my career, it's felt like that. The last two years, uh, especially, I mean, it, my eyes have been opened to, to an undercurrent within the university uh, with the university leadership doing almost nothing to sort of change, in fact, aiding and abetting it to suppress free, uh, free the free exchange of ideas. Yeah, you mentioned you mentioned you and Unides. I think uh, Scott Atlas is another one that that at Scott Stanford as well. They got they got you know. I think the was it a Stanford um, uh, Senate or faculty Senate uh, resolution to try to do something against, I don't know if you were involved in that, but I think for sure Atlas once. No, that, that was, yeah, that was Scott. They, they attacked Scott because they didn't like that he's working for Trump. Right, know, but the, the like fact they, that they, 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 the, the substance of the arguments against him were, were nonsense. They said he wasn't in favor of hand washing. Well, that's just a lie. <laughs> I mean, um, I, I think, uh, you know, the, the, the fact that they don't agree with him about the science of masks. Well, I tell you what, Scott knows more about the science of masking than, than the, the typical member of the faculty Senate voting. Um, 
uh, for me personally, like, they, like there was a petition floated around by some epidemiology professors at, trying to get the university president to silence me. Um, because I because I said that there were no randomized trials suggesting showing that masks worked in children, which is true. It's just a true fact. Um, uh, the uh, the uh, the 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 way that disagreements should be dealt with. There's a constructive way and dis and, a, and a destructive way. The the constructive way is open debate and open discussion, tolerance for the opposing views, even if you disagree. Uh, the destructive way is this sort of like. Uh, 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 sneaking around, circulating secret petitions, or 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 getting petitions to try to silence and denounce, um, those are not tactics of a confident group of people who are confident about the intellectual uh, sort of the intellectual position that they hold. Those, those are the tactics of a group of people that are will not defend their position openly with arguments and facts. Because you know, I might be wrong about something, and I, frankly, if I'm wrong about something, you show me facts, show me the evidence. I will. I'm happy to change my mind because now I've learned something new. This is the this is the argument that John Stuart Mill made over over um, for free speech, right? So if I'm if I if I say something wrong, well, I, and you and you have the right idea, well, I've given I've actually given you a blessing. You've given I've given you the opportunity to correct me. So that you yourself can be more confident because it's been challenged by a wrong idea. Now you have a better argument why you were right. And, or alternatively, maybe you'll be corrected, which is actually also good for you. I mean, that notion of tolerance and in humility is, is, is absolutely central to, tr to like true academic freedom. And what we have instead is this atmosphere of, of demonization of the other this 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 repulsion this this idea that even even having a debate at all is dangerous well i tell you what that that idea that having a debate is dangerous is itself dangerous so final final thought um on you mentioned that there's a uh, you think there's a consensus emerging of the lockdowns being very costly not done anything i i'm happy to hear that because I believe that's true. And we, we have a lot of evidence, you know, that people like you and me and others have been putting together on this. But would you say there's a consensus arising on that or, 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 or is something that well, I, mean, I, th I think I haven't, I, I'm not, I haven't necessarily feel that way yet. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think scientists will be debating this and economists will be debating this for, for, for a long time. But I think in the population at large, it's, it's starting to form, right? And you can see this with the mass protests around Europe. Right. over the vaccine passports and lockdowns. You can see this in the United States where large large populations are just basically flouting COVID law or COVID, COVID policy, like, you know, like, and and they're openly walking. Like how, how many times have you heard the joke about people walking into restaurants, you put the mask on to walk to the table because the COVID spreads when you walk and when you sit down, you can take it off, right? Because the COVID doesn't spread when you're sitting down. Um, I mean, I mean the, po the population understands that's theater, right? And um, so I think in the population at large, we're seeing a turning and it's, I think it's not, it's inevitable. And so, and, and, there, and it's because of the facts, right? That like the, the population at large sees that it, these lockdowns have harmed them, that these restrictions aren't doing very much other than causing harm. Um, now there's still, still, still like, you know, uh, parts of the population that still are gripped in panic, but it's increasingly, uh, in small blue, smaller, smaller and smaller groups of people in, in blue enclaves that are 
that are still still attached to this. Um, much of the population is is done with uh, with the epidemic. The vaccines actually have done an enormous thing. Like they've they've got it. They've they've reduced the the the, the risk of severe disease very sharply. We have um, monoclonal antibodies and other treatments that are quite effective. You should get sick. You have uh, fantastic uh, these these like rapid antigen tests you can take at home. So when you go visit grandma, you know you're not infecting her. Uh, I mean, lots and lots of tools uh, that the population at large is discovering. While at the same time, the, there's still groups of people in the scientific community. They're going to be. I mean, you know, when when you have a policy so destructive as this, pushed by the, the 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 smart people of the world, the smart people of the world are not going to readily admit that they did that did such damage, even though they did. Uh, and I'm not expecting that. that. So Carlos, don't look for that. Okay. <laughs> look, look instead to the population at large. Absolutely. Jay, thanks so much for joining us and thanks so much for your work in the past 18 months or so. Thank you. Take care, Carlos. Thanks for listening to Policy at Macomb's. 